Good morning, and welcome to the gathering, Grace Bible Church. I'm always amazed as we worship, and by the presence of the Holy Spirit, and in times of worship, true worship, His presence is made evident to us. Much has been made in the church at, at how some elevate the gifts of the ecstatic, more ecstatic gifts such as tongues, healings, and casting out of demons. Conservative saints, like us, tend to distance themselves from these types of manifestations of the Spirit, and for good reason. We don't want to be identified with false displays, uh, attributing something to the Holy Spirit that is not of the Holy Spirit. Having said that, I wonder sometimes if this causes us to downplay the role of the Spirit in the lives of God's people. After all, Paul prayed that the saints would understand the surpassing greatness of his power toward those of us who believe. It is this power which raised Christ from the dead and seated him at God's right hand in the heavenlies. I would argue that seeking this power through miraculous gifts misses the entire point of what God is doing through us as Christians. In other words, his kingdom power is demonstrated through our transformed lives, which are reflected in our Christian walk, in our daily lives, what we do day to day to day. The, this kingdom power is also displayed in our suffering for the truth. The Apostle Paul captures this thought, thought in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He says, and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. In other words, God may not choose to heal directly. Right? He may choose that to demonstrate His power by allowing His saints to suffer. That, let that hang for a moment. He may choose to display His power in us by allowing us to suffer. And it is through our suffering that the power of Christ is per perfected in us. I would offer that our worship is sweeter during times of suffering, especially when we suffer for Christ's sake. But what about sign gifts such as tongues and healing and casting out of demons? Do they have their place within the church today? We see them clearly on the pages of Scripture. Therefore, we must grasp Grapple, that is, with their purpose. Now, you may be asking what this question has to do with the kingdom, the current series, the kingdom of God. Well, today I hope to show you the relationship between these gifts, the miraculous gifts that we see, especially in the Gospels, and the kingdom of God. I hope to show you that these gifts were used to show Israel that the kingdom of God that was promised in the Old Testament was truly at hand. So let me pray, and let's get started. Gracious Lord, we come to you again, praying specifically right now that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would bless the hearer, that you would bless the preacher, that the preacher would be clear, would have clarity of heart, clarity of mind, to offer your word to your people. In Christ's name, amen. Let me read to you Luke 1, starting in verse 67. 
read along with me if you'd like. Luke 1, starting in verse 67. And John's father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him in all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness, and the shadow of death to guide our feet unto the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. He lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Of course, Zacharias, speaking of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Lord Jesus. In Philippians 3.20, Paul told the church at Philippi, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 18.36, Jesus himself said that his kingdom is not of this world. In 1 John 2, verses 15-17, through 17, John warned his readers, Do not love the world, nor the things of the world, or the things in the, the world, that is. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, it's hard to imagine... God's kingdom from the perspective of living in our current world, is it not? Yet, Jesus calls us to live as strangers and exiles on the earth. We are to eagerly wait for a better country. That is a heavenly one. We are to trust that God has prepared a city for us. But I recognize the difficulty of letting go of this place when we can't fully see and understand what is to come. Some find letting go of this world with all it has to offer a great obstacle. This reminds me of a story I read about the experience of a boy who got his hand caught inside of an, an, an expensive vase. His upset parents applied soap suds and cooking oil without success. They couldn't get that hand to, be, to come out. And they, when they had tried everything and were ready to break the vase as the only way to release his hand, the young boy cried, would it help if I let loose of the penny I'm holding? Sometimes we're like that boy. We're so fixated on all this world offers with its money, with its prestige, with our great careers. Yet we forget that we are not citizens of this worldly kingdom. We are, in fact, as Christians, if you are truly a Christian, you are a citizen of God's kingdom. Perhaps that's why Jesus warned his disciples in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Or in Matthew 16, 26, he says, 
For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? What world is he talking about? He's talking about this world, and yet forfeits his soul. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? As Christians, we we cause ourselves great anguish when we live for this world and not for the next. Living for this world and not for God's kingdom may be a sign that we are truly, not truly, kingdom citizens. In James 4, James warns that whoever wishes to be a friend of this world, a friend of the world, makes himself himself an enemy, an enemy of God. As we navigate this world, God has been faithful to give us examples of men and women who have lived for another country. Hebrews 11 gives us some brief glimpses of the lives of those who have lived by faith uh, in what is not made visible. These folks trusted the unseen promise of a better kingdom, which God would bring to pass. Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. Prior to sending the the flood of water to judge mankind, Noah believed God's word and he preached righteousness as he built the ark. He was one man standing against a multitude. Abraham believed God by leaving his country and his people. He also willingly attempted to sacrifice his only son, the the promised son, believing that God could raise him from the dead. By faith and God's promises, Sarah received the ability to conceive Isaac. By faith, Moses considered the reproach of Christ as greater riches than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking forward to a much greater reward. Rahab, Gentile prostitute, faced the wrath of her earthly king because she believed that God is the God of heaven above and the earth below. I love how the writer of Hebrews says the following in Hebrews 13, 32. He says, What more shall I say? For time would fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and and, and Samson and Jephthah, of David, of Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to fight. The power of God. By faith. So why were these saints willing to fight and give their lives? Why were they willing to do that? What were they fighting for? They were willing to give their lives for the promised kingdom of God. They were willing to suffer for it, just as King Jesus did. Now I would argue that, that, be, that to be willing to suffer for something, that we need to have a really good understanding of it that you need to have an understanding of what God is doing so that you would be willing to suffer for it. Now, in this first sermon of this series, we looked at the whole of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation and made the case that the kingdom of God is, in fact, the grand theme of Scripture. We saw, starting in the beginning in Genesis 1, that God created man to rule over his creation. In Genesis 3, we saw that man failed to rule according to God's holy mandate by rebelling against His word in the garden. This failure pointed to the need of a man who could rule according to God's righteousness. In later Revelation, in Psalm 8, God reiterated His expectation for man to rule, despite man's failure to do so. 
This further indicated that mankind needed, needs a righteous ruler capable of ruling in righteousness. After man's utter failure to, to rule according to God's word, Satan set up, set up his own kingdom on the earth. In his pseudo-kingdom, sin and death reign supreme. This world lay in the power of the evil one and is subject to the enemy of death. Any ruler who would overcome Satan's control would have to conquer sin and death. Ephesians 1.22 and Hebrews 2.5-8 In those passages we learn that through his perfect life, his sin-crushing sacrifice, and his death-defeating resurrection, Jesus, Jesus, has ascended to the throne of God. He has broken the power of Satan and proven that he alone is worthy where the first Adam failed. He alone, he alone fulfills all righteousness and is the rightful ruler of the earth. Even now, he is on the throne of God, awaiting his future coming when he will take his rightful place as the king. Now, in the second sermon, we looked at the Old Testament and saw five critical views for, from the perspective of the Old Testament saints. Critical view one is that, that man completely failed, the complete failure of man. In Genesis 4-11, through 11, we witnessed the complete freefall of man when left to his own devices. The ancient world before the flood got, got so bad that only Noah and his family were left after God judged the world. After judging the world, God made an unconditional covenant with Noah and his descendants. He promised... <clears throat> he promised to never destroy the, king, the world with water and to set in place uniformity in our world after the upheaval of the flood. Even after the flood, man insisted on ruling in his own way by refusing to obey God's command to fill and subdue the world. At the Tower of Babel, God confused the, the language of the, of the people and scattered the nations over the whole earth. They had utterly failed. The question is, the question is, where would the Messiah, the Redeemer that had been promised, where would he come from? Well, despite man's failure, complete failure, God proved to be faithful. He chose a man named Abram, through whom he would bless all the nations. He promised Abram a land, seed, and blessing. These were concrete promises which were tied to the earth. In other words, God promised a real land with specific dimensions. We see that in Genesis 15. He promised a real offspring, and He promised tangible blessings to enjoy. He would also make Abraham a great nation, even though Abraham would not live to witness this come to fruition. Now, we call this, God, these promises, we call it the Abrahamic Covenant. And what we have to understand about the Abrahamic covenant is that it is an unconditional covenant. And we'll see that today, and we'll see the importance of this, the unconditional nature of that covenant. Critical view number three. The conclusive faithlessness of a nation. The conclusive faithlessness of a nation. In Exodus through 1 Samuel, we see the birth of the nation promised by God. As God told Abraham in Genesis 15, he would take Israel into slavery and oppression for 400 years in Egypt. After this time of growth in Egypt, God led them out. After God made a conditional covenant with the nation, uh, in, in other words, the Mosaic covenant, 
If they obeyed it, they would receive blessings. If they disobeyed it, they would receive curses. Ultimately, Israel failed. They failed early on. They failed under Moses, yet God was still faithful. While the Mosaic Covenant was conditional, the unconditional promises of the Abrahamic Covenant were still operative because they were unconditional. It couldn't be broken. His seed would receive the promised land and blessing. Abraham's seed would receive the promised land and they would receive blessing. The land, seed, and blessing promises were partially, actually partially fulfilled under Joshua. Yet he failed, according to Judges 1, to fully take the land as promised, or as promised to Abraham. The nation miserably failed during the period of the Judges, but God was faithful. Through all of this, he was faithful to preserve the line of Judah during this time. The promised line that the Messiah would come from. Saul, Saul became their king and he failed. Yet God continued to be faithful in raising up a man after his own heart, David, who also who made progress in united the, uniting the nation. Yet he sinned with Bathsheba. So we got Moses, Joshua, Saul, David, along with David's son, starting with Solomon, who all failed to lead the, the nation of Israel in righteousness. So who would be the king? Who could lead and rule the, the nation of Israel in righteousness? But not only that, who could rule the world in righteousness? That brings us to critical view number four. The clear foreshadow of righteous rule. 2 Samuel 7 gives us some insight into God's plan for a future son of David to rule from David's throne. We saw that last week. And God made what we call the Davidic covenant with David and his sons. Yet David's immediate sons, Solomon and beyond, failed, as we said. And Israel and Judah would end up in exile because of their disobedience. And even though there was a partial restoration under Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, Israel has remained in exile until this very day. Until this very day. The question is, was God done with Israel? If so, if so, if God was done with Israel, how would he fulfill his promises to Abraham? That's the big question. If not, if he's not done, how will God bring all his promises to pass for Israel and, and by the way, for the nation? That brings us to critical view number five, the clarifying faith of a new covenant. I want you to turn quickly to Jeremiah 31 because I want to clean up something from last week. <clears throat> As we close out this discussion on the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 31, we saw, Jeremiah 31, we saw <clears throat> that God promised a new covenant with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. I hope you remember that. Now we need to recognize that at that time, at the time of Jeremiah, Israel had been, had been were, were being taken, would, would be taken into captivity. Now, in Jer Jeremiah chapters 1 through 29, Jeremiah pronounces judgment against Judah for their disobedience. Now, Israel had been taken into captivity at this point. Judah was in the process of it. They were truly at a point of no return and would soon be exiled like the northern tribes. Now, if you go to Jeremiah 30, he promises the, the full restoration of his people. Now look at Jeremiah 31, 1. Very important. Jeremiah 31, 1. And we saw Jeremiah 31 last week as we 
looked at the New Covenant. But I want to show, show you something. God addresses in Jeremiah 31. Notice he says, all the families of Israel, notice, they shall be my people. They shall be my people. Look down at 31.3. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Now, I would argue that that statement in, Jer- in Jeremiah 31 alludes back to Exodus 34.6, where God told Moses that he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. That's who God is. That's who he is. Praise the Lord, right? The connection to Exodus is critical. Look at 31.4. Look at 31.4. Before I read it, I want, you to, I want you to know that this verse clearly points back to the Exodus narrative. In Exodus 14, God had delivered Israel out of Pharaoh's hand by drowning Pharaoh's army. In Exodus 14.31, Exodus 14.31 tells us that Israel saw Yahweh's great power, and they feared him, and they believed in him. Now, chapter 15 records, this is Exodus 15, I'm just, I'm giving you a sidebar here. Chapter 15 records Israel's celebration of their deliverance by the powerful hand of Yahweh. Look at, or just listen to Exodus 15, 20. It says, Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took timbrel in her hand. And all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancing. So they were celebrating. They were celebrating the fact that God had delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh. Now look back at Ezekiel 31.4. Again, I will build you, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Again, you will take up your tambourines and go forth to the dances of merrymakers. You see the connection? That there will be a new exodus. You see... Israel right now is in exile, and God will lead them out and lead them back into the nation of Israel, the land of Israel, the promised land. In other words, Ezekiel is referring to another exodus, which will occur at some time in the future after Israel's exile. Verse 5 clearly ties the new exodus to the promised land. Unless you miss it, look at verse 5. Again, again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The planters will plant and will enjoy them. You see, the Old Testament prophets fully expected that Israel would be restored to the land. And it is at that time of of restoration that God will make a new covenant with His people Israel. We see that in Jeremiah 34 later on. We saw that last week. For the Old Testament prophets, there seemed to be more of a question about the future of the Gentile nations and how they fit than there was about the future of Israel. A literal interpretation of the Old Testament shows that they expected Israel to be fully restored to the land. And with this as our backdrop, and this is where we stopped last week, with this as our backdrop, let's look at the first proof that the New Testament saints actually agreed with the Old Testament prophets. So, from the New Testament Gospels, mostly the Gospels today, we will see five proofs that the New Testament saints understood that God would restore the kingdom to Israel. Let's look at that, the first proof. The proclamation of the coming king. Turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at six 
early proclaimers of the, new, of the coming king. Six early proclaimers of the coming king. In Luke chapter 1, and you'll find, what you'll find as you, as you read through, is that Luke begins to write out the events surrounding the life of Jesus in consecutive order. In 1, 5, 20, 5 through 25, he tells the story of John the Baptist's parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth. The angel Gabriel announced to them the birth of John, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. In 126, Luke begins to tell the story of a young man who would become the mother of Jesus. A young woman, that is, who would become the mother of Jesus. Luke recounts the angel Gabriel was also sent from God to Mary in Nazareth. And Gabriel announced to Mary, Jesus is coming, virgin birth. After the declaration, Mary was perplexed at what the angel had to say. Of course, you would be too. But look at verse 30. This is Luke 1, verse 30. Look what the angel said to her. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus, shall name him Jesus, that is. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of David, his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So clearly what Gabriel is doing is he's tying this baby, this coming baby that would be in Mary's womb, tying that baby to the throne of David. He is the rightful heir to the throne. He'll sit on the, the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob. What's the other word for Jacob? Israel. Forever. He will have a kingdom which will never end. The connection then to 2 Samuel 7 we saw last week is absolutely unmistakable. Let's look at the second proclaimer. Second proclaimer, Mary. In chapter 1, verses 39 through 45, Mary went to visit Elizabeth. And in response to Elizabeth's words of blessing, Mary responds with what we call her Magnificat. Mary's words reveal her understanding of deep theological matters. She understood some stuff. She might have been young, but she got it. She had a firm grasp of the kingdom, which, by the way, matched the Old Testament prophets. Look at verse 54. Look at verse 54. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. Again, we see that Mary understood that the birth of Jesus was a help to Israel. Again, that's consistent with the Old Testament prophets. Look at verse 55. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. So what's happening in 55 is Mary is tying Israel's future to Abraham. It's not tied to the Mosaic Covenant. Israel's future is tied to the unconditional covenant that God made with Abraham. You see, Israel failed to keep the, the Mosaic Covenant, but that was conditional. Mary carefully ties Israel's future to the Abrahamic Covenant, which was always unconditional. Gabriel, Gabriel and Mary both clearly connect the coming king with the Davidic and Abrahamic Covenants, both of which are unconditional covenants. Look at the third proclaimer. We saw this in our opening. Zacharias. Zacharias. In 
verses 57 through 66, Luke recounts John's birth, John the Baptist. In verse 67, Zacharias' tongue was loosed. Remember, he couldn't talk when, when this all happened. And, and, but it was loosed in verse 67, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And look at verse 68, chapter 1. Uh-oh. Chapter 1, verse 68. <clears throat> it says, For blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people. Now, what do you think Zacharias was thinking, right? You see the connection to Israel. These saints are clearly looking forward to what God would do for Jacob. Look at verse 69. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Again, we see the link to David. Keep going. Verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Who, who, who is he referring to? You know the answer. The consistency here shouldn't be surprising. You see, Zechariah expected, clearly expected the prophet's words to come to pass. He anticipated that God would keep all his promises. Look at verse 72. To show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath which he swore to Abraham our father. Just like Mary, Zacharias understood the unconditional nature of the Abrahamic covenant. He understood that God will do exactly as he promised Abraham. Which, by the way, shows that he hadn't done it, right? It hadn't been fulfilled. Had it been fulfilled, he wouldn't be she wouldn't be, or Zacharias or Mary wouldn't be talking about it in the future. Look at your text in verse 74. To grant us, that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. You see, Zacharias expected a day when Israel would be rescued from the hand of their enemies and they would serve God without any fear from the surrounding nations. It's a beautiful thing. Let's look at a fourth proclaimer. And actually, this is a group, but we're going to lump them all together. Turn to Matthew 2. Fourth <clears throat> proclaimer of the Magi. The theme of Matthew is that Jesus is the king. Look at 2.1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now many commentators believe that the Magi were a priestly caste of astrologers, astrologers from Persia, from the east. They may have been taught to expect Israel's Messiah from Daniel while he was in captivity in Babylon. They may also have had access to the prophecies of Balaam, who prophesied that a star would arise from Israel in Numbers 24-15. Now, these Gentile Magi indicate an understanding that a king would be born to the Jews. Significantly, and we don't need to miss it, we shouldn't miss this, this is an early indication that the Gentile nations would actually be included in the Messiah's rule. So there was an expectation for Israel, but there's also an expectation of the Messiah ruling over the nations. 
very important. Let's look at a fifth proclaimer. Fifth proclaimer. The leaders, again a group, the leaders of Israel. Look at 2-3. Here we see King Herod. Now I refer to him as a usurper king. Usurper king, who was no king at all, really. He was probably a, a descendant of Esau. Therefore, this man had no, uh, no rightful claim to the throne. No, no rightful claim to rule over Israel. He was, he was only there, actually, because he was in the pocket of Rome. Of course, Herod, Herod was fearful that someone would overtake his throne. So when the Magi came to town looking for the king of the Jews, he was instantly put on edge because he knew. He knew. He understood. The text says he was troubled. He knew the prophecies of the coming king, the Messiah, the true king. He understood those things. Look at verse 4. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. See, he knew the rightful king was coming, and he was afraid. I mean, that's, that explains why he reacted so violently, right? He knew, he knew that his days were numbered. Look at your text. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophets. So where did the leaders of Israel go to answer Herod's questions? They went to the prophets, specifically Micah 5.2. Keep going. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's clear what they expected. The, even the religious leaders understood that the Messiah would come from Judah. They also recognized that he would be a leader, a ruler, that is, who would rule Israel. As such, he was a threat to Herod. And by the way, he was a threat to the religious leaders. They didn't even take, you know, the Magi came from a long way away, right? They didn't even take the time to go a few miles away. I think it's like five or six miles to Bethlehem out of Jerusalem. They didn't even bother to do that, to come see their king. The rightful king. They didn't understand, fully understand the purpose of his first coming, but they recognized that the, that the Messiah would be the ruler. Let's look at a fifth proclaimer. This is a pair. Pair, Simeon and Anna. Look, turn back to Luke 2. Turn back to Luke 2. In 221, in 2.21, Joseph and Mary present Jesus to the Lord at the temple in Jerusalem. There were two saints there who were called Anna and Simeon. And if there's any two people in the Bible that I'd love to get to, to, to know, obviously there's a lot of them, but Anna and Simeon would be at the top of that list. These were amazing people. You see, Simeon had been looking for the Messiah. He had been promised that he wouldn't see death until he saw the Messiah. When Mary and Joseph brought Jesus, he took the child into his arms and blessed God, saying, look at verse 29, 229. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. It's going to include all of those all of those, the, the Israel and the nations. You see, uh, you see the importance of this. It's critical. 
Simeon's words fit the expectation of Isaiah, the, or the prophet Isaiah that Israel would be a light to the Gentile nations. It will come to pass. It would be through Jesus that this would occur. He would be that servant, the suffering servant that, that Isaiah spoke about. See, God has promised a glorious future which includes Israel along with the nations. Look at verse 36. Anna was a, a prophetess who had been widowed for many years until she was 84. She never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayer. Look at verse 38. At that very moment, so Simeon and, and Mary and Joseph there with the baby Jesus, at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. The point that we're making here is that there's consistency. Every one of these people were looking for the redemption of Israel. They were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem, and they expected it. They expected it. They understood the words of the prophets. They expected Israel's Messiah to be the glory of God's people, Israel. He would redeem Jerusalem. By the way, it's trampled underfoot right now, even to this day, by the Gentiles. And he'll make that right. I can promise. All these witnesses, starting with Gabriel and Mary, along with Zacharias and the Magi, Herod and the leaders of Israel, and now Simeon and Anna, they all look forward to the fulfillment of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants, and they look forward to this child being the one who would fulfill the promises. The promises that God made to Abraham and to David centuries before. Let's look at the next proof that the, Old, or the New Testament saints understood that God would restore the kingdom of Israel, the precursor of the coming king. Now, I'm going to show you a seventh proclaimer. Now, this, this guy deserves a category by himself. Turn to Matthew 3.1. Matthew 3.1 says, Now in, the days, in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here John referred to the kingdom of heaven. Now, we need to be careful because we need to understand that in the right way. The, key, it's a king, the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom which finds its source in heaven. That becomes important later. In the words of Michael Block, this does not mean the kingdom is heaven itself or that the kingdom has nothing to do with the earth. Instead, the kingdom's source is heaven. Heaven is where it comes from, although it takes tangible earthly form. So what, so what does it mean that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? And again, and again in the words of Michael Block, <coughs> the best understanding is that John's and Jesus' presentation of the kingdom involved the full package of kingdoms, kingdom blessings as foretold in the Old Testament. As the kingdom message played out in real time, it would become evident that there would be two comings of the king. Now, hold on to that thought. This, this will become significant as we explore Jesus' life and ministry. Look at 3.3. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one crying out, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, here, we have to, we have to give you some background. 
John is quoting Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, I know we don't have time to go back there, but it looks forward past God's judgment of Israel at the hand of Babylon to, or Judah, Israel and Judah at the hand of Assyria and Babylon to the comfort and hope, or, or the hope and comfort of a glorious future. In Isaiah 40, Isaiah prophesies good news for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah. You need to go back and read it if you, if you would like to. Reminiscent to Job 38 through 40, he also shows that God has the power to bring all these promises to pass. The question is, how big is your God? And Isaiah's God is really big. Isaiah ends chapter 40 with this, verse 31. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. In other words, for those who are patient, for those who trust in God's promises, He will bring all of those to pass. There will be no exceptions. He will restore Jerusalem. He will restore the nation of Israel, just as He promised, just as the prophets have foretold. Israel will be the light, a light to the nations, and Jesus, the son of David, will rule from David's throne. It will happen. How big is your God? When John the Baptist proclaimed Isaiah 40, verse 3, he clearly understood the implications of Isaiah's prophecy. Therefore, he believed that this Jesus came to be the Messiah to fulfill those prophecies of the kingdom. Now, I need to correct one thing. I need to correct one thing. I said that these are proofs that the New Testament saints understood that God would restore the kingdom to Israel. Now, if you're astute, and I know most of you are, if not all of you, you realize that these proclaimers are actually Old Testament saints prior to Jesus' ministry. Right? That is except for Gabriel. He was sent from God. So he's a, that's a special exception. And if you thought that, you're correct. The Holy Spirit hadn't, been, hadn't come. Church hadn't been formed. So this is Old Testament saints. So they, it would make sense. Even in, from that argument, it would make sense that they would have the same expectation as the prophets. So maybe they had it wrong. Maybe they were wrong too. Maybe they didn't see everything. Maybe, maybe there was something that they weren't seeing. And I know, I mean, the, the church is a big thing. So we'll get to that. But there, these saints show that there's clear continuity between the Old Testament prophets and those who lived at the time of Jesus' birth. The question is, will this understanding change as we look at Jesus' ministry and beyond? Did Jesus have something completely different in mind that, than what these saints and, and Gabriel understood? Did he have something different in mind than what the Old Testament prophets were saying? Well, let's look at the fifth proof. Or I think it's the fifth proof. Maybe it's not. Um, the presentation of the present, the third, third one. I'm getting behind. The third one, the presentation of the of the Christ King. And let's briefly look at this. This one goes quick. Look back at Matthew three. In three one, we saw the beginning and the message of John's ministry. And three one through twelve, uh, three one through twelve give a full description of his ministry prior to the revealing of Jesus. In 13, verse 13, we pick up at Jesus' baptism. Clearly, John understood that Jesus was greater than he because John resisted baptizing him, right? But Jesus insisted. Look at verse 15. But answering him, 
Jesus answering him said, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John the Baptist permitted him. So, so John baptized Jesus. Now, among other things, Jesus' baptism connected Jesus to John. It showed that the one that John had been preaching was Jesus, the Messiah. And in 3, 16 and 17, the Holy Spirit and the Father dramatically identified Jesus as the Messiah by fulfilling the words of Isaiah 42.1 and Psalm 2.7. You can go back and look at it later. Immediately after Jesus' baptism, then, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Now, we don't have time, obviously, to unpack all that's in Matthew 4, but I do want to point out the kingdom implications. Chapter 4 depicts... Satan's three main temptations of Jesus. It's critical to note that that Jesus responded to each temptation with Scripture. Now, Now, we have seen that there is a cosmic battle between God and Satan that's been going on from the very beginning. Now, look at chapter 4, verse 8. This is Matthew 4, 8. It says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Whose kingdoms are those? Satan's, right? Now, God's on His eternal throne. That hasn't changed. But these are Satan's kingdoms. And He said to them, to him, All these things I will give to you, or give you, if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Now, these verses clearly show that Satan has set up his kingdom on the earth. It's clear. We've been talking about it. It's clear. What God intended to be a kingdom of righteousness, Satan has appropriated for his evil desires. Now, in the words of Michael Block, the the arrival of Jesus was an invasion of Satan's evil empire. This carpenter from Nazareth may not have seemed like much, but Satan knew that the, the disastrous implication of his arrival. You see, Satan understood and he knew the implications for his earthly kingdom, and he fully recognized that Jesus would, in fact, set up God's kingdom. The first Adam had failed. The second Adam, the second Adam would not fail. And Satan knew it. We can't miss the focus on the earth. God intends to set up his kingdom on the earth, which will crush Satan's kingdom. You see... It's a physical kingdom, but it's not merely physical, and that's something we need to get to. It would have spiritual requirements. It's critical to understand that. Look quickly at Matthew 4.15, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus' ministry. We see that he set up his ministry operations in Galilee of the Gentiles. That shows, again, that I would argue that the Gentiles have always been included in God's plan. Now look at 4.17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, where have you heard that? It's the same message that John preached. It's the same message. There's continuity. The message hasn't changed. It has not changed. Now, look at Matthew 5. Here we find the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we said that Jesus' kingdom would be a physical one with spiritual requirements. Now, I would argue that in this sermon, Jesus gives His disciples those spiritual requirements. I take the view that in the Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus presents a future kingdom, which has implications for his disciples, for us, in this present age. Craig Keener states the following, The present significance of the future kingdom in early Christian teaching was thus that God's people in the present age were citizens of the coming age. So, we're not citizens, we're not citizens of this world. We're citizens of heaven. Right? And we are to live that way. And that's what Jesus is setting up here in the Sermon on the Mount. Now in 5.1, Jesus went up on a mountain. This act is significant because it identifies him with Moses who went up on a mountain to receive the law of God. I don't have time to prove that, but I, I believe it. I think it's true. Notice in verse 3, he says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's the kingdom of heaven again. Now again, we see the continuity of the message. Now you may say, you may say, and I give it to you, that he's referring to a spiritual kingdom. Look at verse 5. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. It's pretty physical to me. So Jesus is preaching a kingdom that has significance to the earth. Again, this fits into the Old Testament prophet's expectation. It matches the promise of land to Abraham. It meets the expectation of those who were looking for Jesus' birth. And in 5... 11 through 12, Jesus begins to show His kingdom followers in this age that they would suffer. See, the, the kingdom hadn't come yet. This is still Satan's kingdom. So those who live according to God's kingdom will suffer. That's why we're persecuted. That's why, that's why they hate us. That's why they hated Christ. That's why they killed Him. Obviously, Christ came to be sacrificed, but from the other perspective, they killed him, nailed him to a cross. In 5.13-19, Jesus started teaching his disciples how to live in this age, right? We're going to be persecuted, so how do we live proclaiming the kingdom? Notice in 5.20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So, in other words, God's kingdom will be different than Satan's kingdom. His kingdom would require righteousness to enter. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount expounds upon the righteousness which will be present in Christ's coming kingdom. The righteousness that His kingdom citizens here today need to li should live by, right? Now, before we leave the sermon, I should point out the significance of what people call the Lord's Prayer. I think it's better dubbed the Disciples' Prayer in Matthew 6, 9. Now, a familiar prayer to most people. Matthew 6, 9. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, this is from the disciples' perspective. This is from the perspective of those who are living in Satan's kingdom today, praying to God that His kingdom would come and that His will would be, would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that heaven would come down. That's what, the prayer, what we're praying for, that heaven and earth would come together. And there'd be righteousness on the earth. And in the meantime, give us this day our daily bread. 
Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, here's what's interesting. Look at verse 13. And do not lead us into temptation. Where's the temptation coming from? Because we live in Satan's world. This world is tempting to us. And he wants us to be protected. So we need to be praying that we would be protected from temptation. Look at verse 13 again. I think it's 13. Verse 11, I don't know where I... Somehow I got messed up, but that's okay. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Actually, actually, I think that could be translated the, the evil one. That'd be translated the evil one. Why is that important? Because this world lies in the power of the evil one. Who do we need to be delivered from? The evil one. Those who are not in Christ are in the power of the evil one. We need deliverance. Those who are in Christ need protection from the evil one. Because he prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for those he might devour. This prayer is significant because it forms the correct perspective of life in this evil age which is controlled by the evil one. In other words, the true disciple should pray for the arrival of God's kingdom. He should also fervently pray for God's will to be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. That's what it should be. We're praying for God's kingdom. And we're living according to His kingdom now. As we close out this proof, there are questions. Would the leaders of Israel recognize their king who would usher in his kingdom? Or would they reject him? And if they reject, is there a plan B? Is there a plan B? Let's look at the prescription of the Christ king. After Jesus' presentation, he began to go around the country teaching and performing miracles. I would argue that the miracles, and I've already alluded to it, were glimpses of the future kingdom. He healed sicknesses which showed that he controlled them and that there would be no sickness in his kingdom. He raised people from the dead which proved that he had power over death and that that he would ultimately defeat death. He cast out demons showing that Satan and his demons, even though they have control in this world, do not have authority in his kingdom. He controlled the weather even. He controlled the nature showing that he had the power to change atmospheric conditions. This points to a transformation of the earth's weather patterns in the future. He has the power to do those things. Now as Jesus taught and performed those miracles, the leaders of Israel became more and more agitated. All you have to do is read the Gospels to see that. That conflict became to a head in Matthew 12. Turn there real quick. Matthew 12, verse 22. Here we see that Jesus healed a blind and mute mute man. In verse 23, the crowds connected Jesus to David. Now, look at verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. There you have it. That's the answer. The Jewish leaders have chosen. They have attributed Jesus' miracles and teaching to the works of Satan. Now, verses 25 to 28, I'll summarize it because we're running out of time, or have run out of time. Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. That's what Jesus said. 
And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. It can't, that can't be. So he can't be casting out demons in the name of Beelzebul because that would be Satan against Satan. So he says, I cast them out, but if I cast them out by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is at hand. The leaders of Israel then, they've rejected their king and their kingdom. They've committed the unpardonable sin. By the way, that's the unpardonable sin. Attributing the miracles wrought through the Holy Spirit to Satan is the unpardonable sin. So people who wonder if they've committed it, probably not. So the question remains, plan A seems to have failed. What is plan B? Let's look at the proclamation of the Christ King. In Matthew 16, Jesus makes the, his first mention of the church. Matthew 16, 18, he said to Peter, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. It's very interesting. He does this standing literally at what's called the gates of Hades, gate of Hades. And so, so he's making a declaration. Don't have time to prove it. He's making a declaration to the demonic world that he will build his church in the kingdom of Satan. He will do this. We will be his outpost. It's, it's powerful. Now, I would argue that, that Jesus is declaring that no matter what happens going forward, he would build a people for his own possession. These people would be made up of Jews and Gentiles. They would be called the church, and they would be a microcosm of God's coming kingdom where Jews and Gentiles would dwell together with Christ as their king. Remember Paul said Ephesians 3, the dividing line will be, has been torn down, right? In the church, we're going to dwell together. I think that that's a microcosm of what's going to happen in the kingdom where we dwell together forever. Now, after his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus' church would, could, would continue to proclaim the message of his coming kingdom. In Matthew 28, 18-20, Jesus gave his church the Great Commission. In, in verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven, on, in heaven and on earth, where that authority came from what he had accomplished, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. So, so we're going to make disciples of the nations. We're going un, unto the nations, and we're making disciples for the king, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of this age. The point is, is that Christ is with us, and we're proclaiming the kingdom. We're not the kingdom. We're proclaiming the kingdom. Now this brings us full circle to where we started the series. You may recall that we started the first part of this series by looking at Acts chapter 1. After the apostles witnessed the entirety of Jesus' ministry, they asked Jesus in 1.6, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? What kingdom are they talking about? The same kingdom that's been talked about in the Old Testament by the prophets, the same kingdom that Gabriel and Mary and Zacharias and the Magi and the leaders of Israel and John the Baptist all expected, that's the kingdom that they're talking about. Shows that they had not changed their understanding of the kingdom. It's the same kingdom. It's the same one. 
They had not changed it because there is no plan B. There is no plan B. It's always been plan A. There is no other plan. Yahweh, the great I Am, will make a new covenant with the house of Judah and with the house of Israel. He will restore the kingdom to Israel. He will plant Israel in the promised land. Israel will be a light to the nations. Jesus will reign on the throne of David as the rightful king. The question is not whether these things will happen, but when. But when? Again, I ask you, how big is your God? Can he, is he big enough to bring all these promises to fruition? Is he big enough? In the meantime, every one of us have a question to answer. Which team are you on? Are you a citizen of the coming kingdom? Are you a citizen of this world? In order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. John 3, 3, Jesus told Nicodemus. Jesus told Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's the spiritual requirements we're talking about. You see, at his, at his first coming, Jesus came as a baby in the manger. He, he came, he was, he, he was born to die. God didn't send him in the world to judge the world. He says in John 3, but that the world might be saved through him. That's the first coming. Sitting there in your seat today, be realistic. Are you a citizen of heaven? Do you know Jesus, the king, who will come not as a baby in a manger? He will come in judgment. Do you know Him as your Lord and Savior? Friend, if your answer is no, you are in a dangerous place. Turn to Him now. He suffered, bled, and died on the cross to save you from your sins. Don't let a day go by without turning to Him and believing on His work on the cross. Don't let it go by. Christ is coming. In judgment. He's coming to set up his kingdom. These words have pricked your heart today. I ask that you come talk to me. Come and talk to me. Come and talk to Phil. Come and talk to Vay. Discuss these things with us so that you may also be in the kingdom. Our gracious Lord. You are so good. Lord, there was so much to say today. So much that I left unsaid. But Lord, you are good and your Holy Spirit is working. Father, I pray that you would stir up questions. That you would stir up a heart of wanting to know. Study these things. That it wouldn't just be the talking head up here talking and telling these things, but that, they would, that your people would search the Scriptures. See if these things are so. They would ask questions of of Scripture. They would ask questions and want to know more with the heart of wanting to know. Father, if there are people here today who don't know you, 
I pray that you would prick their heart. That you would, your Holy Spirit would draw them to you. Even today. Even right now. In Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.